So good morning, my name is Laura and this morning we're going to dive straight into our new series like you've seen on the screen, Elijah, one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament and we see his story from the book of 1 Kings. It's a captivating story and through his life and his experience we can learn about what that means for our own faith, our own courage, our own obedience and the the provision that God provides for us in our lives. So be encouraged as we study through the book of 1 Kings and look at the life of Elijah. So before we look at Elijah, we want to understand a little bit about the background of what is happening in Israel at the time. So a few chapters before Elijah's ministry begins, we see uh, the North Israel, which is uh, God's chosen people, actually divide into two nations. They split. There's fighting amongst them. So we have the southern kingdom of Judah and then we have the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel, the northern kingdom, when this split happens, mostly walks away from God. King after king led them down the path of worshipping false idols. Generation after generation did evil in the sight of God. So this is the kind of setting and situation that we find Elijah walking into. But just when you can't get any worse, when you think king after king are really bad, this is not a good situation, we come to 1 Kings chapter 16. And in verse 25 it says... But Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So there'd been a lot of kings before him. So this man, King Omri, did so much evil in the Lord's sight. Now, when you think about the kind of legacy you want to leave behind, leave when you leave this earth, that's probably not what you want written down, recorded forever in history, that you did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone before you. This is the situation in Israel at the time. People moving away from God, evil kings leading them astray, worshipping false idols. But then after King Omri, we see his son, Ahab, who comes into power. And this is what 1 Kings 16 verse 29 says about Ahab, his son. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any other king before him. So if you thought his old man was bad, here comes along Ahab, his son, and it's even worse, even more evil. I can't even imagine what was happening in Israel at the time. But to make that worse, we see that Ahab not only disobeyed what God was doing, he married someone that God had asked him not to marry. He married a lady that we probably all may have heard of. In 1 Kings 16 verse 31 it says, And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he, talking about Ahab, married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down and worship Baal. First Ahab built a temper temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole and he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. Wow. Leading people astray, marrying someone that God asked him not to marry. So God had asked the Israelites not to marry anyone outside of the Israelite nation and this was not to restrict them because people from other nations were maybe mean or maybe what we would even consider ugly. That was not the case of all at all. God asked the Israelites not to marry people from other nations. It was to protect them because people from other nations were bringing in spiritual practices, bringing in false gods that were corrupting the nation. And they were God's chosen people. They were designed and set apart to show the world who God was. 
So these outsiders would bring in these false idols, and as you know, it snowballed, and they did evil on the side of the Lord. So King Ahab totally ignored God's command and married Jezebel. And not only did that, he set up a temple for a false god, an Asherapol as well, so that other people could worship false gods. So this is what's happening in Israel when Elijah bursts onto the scene. He would have grown up in this world. But the first time we meet Elijah, he actually makes a really dramatic entrance into the Old Testament, a dramatic entrance where he's confronting King Ahab. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord of God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. This is the first time we hear of Elijah. Now normally when someone, a prophet, comes onto the scene, we have a little bit more information about the prophet. Maybe a little bit of his lineage, maybe who his parents were. This gives them credibility. They've come from good stock. God has been with the family. They know kind of the history of this person. And Elijah appears out of nowhere. No parents listed, no heritage, no other information about him. And this is really different from what we see of a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. For example, the prophet Samuel. We know that Samuel was called from a really early age. We know how Samuel heard God's voice. We, now, we know how God spoke to Samuel. We know who Samuel's parents were and how he came to be in the temple and worship God and how he grew up. We know a lot about him. But Elijah's very different. All we know is he's suddenly in front of the king with a message from God. His appearance in the Old Testament is quite dramatic. And even more so that there are actually people who think that Elijah wasn't a real person. They think that he was an angel that was sent from heaven. No parents recorded. And not only that, there are only two people in the Bible that have been ever in the history of humankind never gone through physical death. Enoch in Genesis was one of them, and it said Enoch walked with God and then he was gone because God took him. And Elijah's life ends, like we'll look at at the end of this series, in a more mysterious way than it began. It says that he was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Horses and a chariot made of fire and a whirlwind, and he disappears. Mysterious. Who is this man? So it's kind of understandable that people actually think that he's an angel. It isn't a new idea, and there are Jews that still believe that today. No parents, no background, no way that we know he didn't physically die. Who is this guy? A mysterious guy with a mysterious message. Is he an angel from God? But we do actually have an answer to this. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote about Elijah in the New Testament. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James writes this in chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was human, as we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall and none fell for three and a half years. Elijah was, in fact, a man called by God and obedient to God's call on his life. And his call was to guide Israel out of corruption and suffering, to draw them back to the one true God. So James puts an end to this myth and this mystery surrounding Elijah. He wasn't an angel. He was a human just like you and I, with a call on his life. His call and his obedience to God, his trust. And in that, God chose him to do amazing things because of his obedience. 
an ordinary human like you and I. And this is one of the greatest takeaways that we can glean from this little bit of this passage. God doesn't look at our talents, our abilities, where we've come from, who our parents are, what we've done in the past, what we're going to do in the future, because we have no idea what happened to Elijah, what all of that meant for him. He's looking at his obedience. We don't know if Elijah had one of those good, strong radio voices that was going to be commanding in front of the king. All we know that about Elijah is that when God called him, he went. And that's the same for us. God is looking for our obedience, our willingness to trust him. God can use us in the same way he used Elijah. He isn't looking for talent. He isn't looking for ability. He's looking for trust and obedience. Now, I'm not even sure how Elijah managed to get this message to the king. It doesn't say how he journeyed there. Is it actually in King Ahab's palace? Did Elijah kind of stalk him and just jump out of the bushes one day and yell this at them? him? We don't actually know how he gave this message to him. How did he become a prophet? How did he know he was a messenger from God? 1 King 17, he tells the king, As surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, the God I serve... There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. I would really love to know more about Elijah's background, his story. How did he know he was called by God? I find those things fascinating because it helps us understand how God speaks. And you'd want to be absolutely certain that this message that you're about to give to an evil king was 100% correct because this is a really big task he's been, he's been asked to do. Telling an evil king this life-threatening message His life was on the line. A difficult message. No rain meant drought, which meant no food, which meant people going hungry, which meant probably chaos in the kingdom. This is not the kind of message you take lightly. You want to make sure this is coming from God. And Elijah knew, and he was obedient. But have a look at this passage. Now, this is something I only noticed as I was preparing for this message. God told Elijah to go and give the message to the king. But that's all God said. God didn't actually tell Elijah the outcome of what that message was going was to do. He didn't tell him the future. He didn't tell Elijah his next steps. He was just asking him to go the first step. And it's only after Elijah's obedience that God said, now here's what you're going to do. Verse 2, this is after he's told, Elijah, uh, told King Ahab, then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by the Kerith brook near where it enters the Jordan River. One step at a time. Now, when have you felt the Holy Spirit prompting you in your life to say something that feels a little risky, to do something that feels a little risky? Maybe it's something you're totally unsure about the outcome. You cannot see into the future. You do not know how it's going to play out. You're totally scared. You don't know. Is this actually God? You're trusting, you're obedient, you've prayed about it. The Holy Spirit is moving in your life. Maybe it's a situation where God is really actually asking you just to take that first step. God is prompting you to speak, to move. It's risky. Is he asking you to do it in very unusual circumstances? Maybe God's prompting you to change directions. Maybe that means you could be fired. Maybe it means it could be a loss of relationship. Maybe God is asking you to trust him in life-changing circumstances. It could go either way. It could go really bad or it could go really well. The Holy Spirit asking you to trust him, but it's only one step he's showing you. 
You know, this is not uncommon. One of the, a very famous verse in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 5, most of you may have heard it before. It says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. One step at a time. A lamp for my feet only shows you a little way into the future. It doesn't show you and light up the whole room or the whole direction. It's one step at a time. As you take that step, it lights up the next step. This is a pattern that God often asks us to do. One step, trusting God in obedience as we faithfully, as we faithfully trust in him. Now, it's easy to remember those times where we stuff this up, where maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting us and we don't actually follow through. So years ago, I was praying for someone and I knew they desperately wanted a child. And as I asked the Holy Spirit, as we're sitting there together, and I, we asked the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, do you want to say anything in this situation? Immediately, I had in my mind's eye a picture of a baby in a womb. And immediately, I was going, nah. God, I am not, absolutely not saying that picture. This is a risky situation. Talking about children, unborn children, the, the need and the want for children is absolutely heartbreaking for some people. I don't know their history. I don't know their background. God, I do not want to say that. I am not going to say that. It was risky. It could have been heartbreaking for this person. That kind of thing can bring up un, just deep, deep grief. And what if I got it wrong? What if I have this picture in my mind and it's not actually from God? What if I say this and I'm giving false hope and false promises in this situation? So this was a discussion I was having in my mind and I was really arguing with God. But God was just showing me the first step. And I didn't take it that day. I was too scared. I didn't share it. So I prayed for this person. We left the situation and it was okay. But I knew in my heart that I hadn't been obedient. I hadn't been faithful to what God was showing me. So I'm telling you this story to share with you what I learned, what I look back and now I realize in this situation. I had the image of that baby in the womb in my mind's eye and all God was asking me to do was share that image. He wasn't asking me to interpret it. He wasn't asking me to do anything else around it but just share that picture I saw. He was asking me to be faithful in that risky situation. He was saying to me that his reputation is his responsibility. I needed to be faithful. I needed to be courageous. And I needed to openly, handedly share that. So I should have said something along the lines of, I feel like God has shown me a picture of this baby in the womb. I could be wrong. Does that mean anything to you? Is, God gonna, is this something that God could speak to you about? That's how I should have said it, open-handedly, just sharing exactly what God had shown me, not interpreting, not doing anything more. And I know in hindsight that would have been extremely powerful in that situation. God would have walked with them. God would have showed us the next step. But it would have showed that person that God knew the desires of their heart, that God knew that he was the yearnings of what was inside them. I didn't need to interpret, but I needed to be open-handed. All he wanted me to be was his messenger. What about you? Has God prompted you to share in some way or do something in some way that's been risky? Maybe you don't need to interpret. Maybe you don't need to do anything else but just take that first step. Did you follow through? Did you trust God with the outcome? And he shows us only usually one step at a time. 
because he wants us to remain and trust in him. He wants us to, as we take each step, really lean into him and rely on him for the outcome, to draw us close in our relationship with him. Verse 2 of 1 Kings, it says, Then Elijah, then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by the Kerith brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside the Kerith brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. So God knew Ahab was going to be unhappy. God knew that Ahab was an, an evil king, so he told Elijah to go and hide. He took him away. He took him to, away to a place, a desolate place, where it was just him and God. An amazing place. A time where God was actually training him for what was coming ahead. Elijah probably didn't know it at the time, but this was preparing him for one of the biggest assignments of his life, which we'll talk about in a few weeks' time. But this place that God was taking him wasn't an accident. The Kerith, Kerith brook, comes from an, the root of an ancient Hebrew word, which means to cut away, to cut up, or to cut off. Now, we don't exactly have an account of how long Elijah was in this, this Kerith book place, but it was a time where God was cutting off, cutting up, and cutting away. He was away from everything else and everyone else, and it was just him and God. And I believe that, I reckon he, him and God were communing in a sacred place, in a desert place, but a sacred place. Now, throughout the Bible, we see that God sometimes draws people to desert, desolate-type places. And I think there are two desert-type places that we can go. And that one, one of them is where God leads us, like this Kerith Brook. A place, and the other one is a place, a desert place, where we go by our own choices, our own decisions, our own actions. The desert place that takes us to by our own actions, our own choices, our own decisions, God still works in that place. He still works through our biggest hurts. He still works in and through us. But for the sake of this message, I want to talk about the desert place that God actually leads us. The place like he led Elijah, the Kerith brook, the place where he cuts away. And he does that to take away anything that hinders us from our relationship with him. It's a training place. It's a sacred place. And maybe you feel exactly like that right now, that God has got you in that desolate place. Maybe you feel like there have just been things cut away. You don't understand it. It feels barren. It feels really hard. You want to escape this place. But we have a choice when God leads us or when we end up there. We can resist it. We can fight it. We can ignore it. We can complain about it. Or we can ask God, where are you in this place? What are you showing me here by this Kerith brook? What are you cutting away from me? What do I need to learn so I can draw closer to you? And we can take courage from those who have gone before us because there are many who have gone before us in these desolate places. Moses spent 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead Israel out of slavery. King David spent time hiding in a desert-like place before God called him to lead Israel. John the Baptist spent a lot of his time in a desert-like place before we hear that he was recorded as the voice calling from the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert after he was baptized. God was getting him ready. And we see each of these times that as God led them to the desert place, he was getting him ready for the next big thing. 
I'm sure these people, if we can talk to them face to face, they would have said, at the time, I did not understand it. At the time, this place was really hard. But at the time, I had to trust in God. God was with them in this place. It's hard. And usually we question it if we feel ourselves there. We want out. We don't want to be in this place. But instead of resisting the desert place, the place where God leads us or the place we end up, what if we considered it a sacred place? What if the desert was a sacred place, a place of encounter, a place where if we let God, he will do the most amazing work in our life? Is it actually a time where God is getting you ready? We don't know usually what for, but is it a time where God is getting us ready? So while Elijah was here in this secret Kerith Brook place where God was cutting away things in his life, God told him something quite strange. So in verse 4 it says, he's telling Elijah, Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I've commanded them to bring you food. Now reading this in our 20th century Western culture, I read this and I'm like, that is actually really cool. God is going to bring birds to this place and provide food. That would be so cool to watch. That would be so cool to experience. But to Elijah listening to this, to God telling him that this was about to happen, this would have been totally contrary to everything he ever knew. He wouldn't have taken this as good news. It would have been really confusing and I would have imagined him saying, God, what, what are you doing in this desert place? Why are ravens bringing me food? Because ravens are scavenger animals and for a Jew they were totally off limits. God had previously commanded them in the laws that they could not go near these scavengers, not to touch them, not to do, have anything to do with them. They're dirty animals that were off limits and God had set up these commands to protect them and keep them safe and healthy. Ravens regularly feast off things like roadkill. They'll eat dead and rotting flesh. They aren't known to be clean animals. They aren't reliable. So Elijah, being a Jew, following God, would have thought, God, this is detestable, dirty scavenger animals. Where on earth are they getting this meat? What even is this meat? Imagine him thinking, God, what are you doing? And apart from that, because a Jew had touched something that an unclean animal had touched, that food, even if it was clean, automatically became unclean because the ravens had touched it. So everything that Elijah ate in that time, because he consumed it, made him unclean. So that whole time, technically, that he was at the Kerith Brook, he was considered unclean in the sight of God, technically by the law. And yet God is saying, I'm taking you to this place and something weird and unusual is going to provide for you and I'm going to speak to you. This is amazing. Why on earth would God do this to Elijah? What was he doing here? Every single meal provided to Elijah, unclean, which made him unclean. This is bizarre. God chose something despised and rejected to, to minister to Elijah. This was the ultimate trust scenario for Elijah, the ultimate obedience. Because if he didn't eat this food, he would have died. This is a sacred space that God is saying, regardless of what's going on, you have to believe me, you have to trust in me, and I'm going to make you right and holy regardless of what's going on around you. Maybe you don't understand what God is doing in your life right now. Are you trusting him to take that very next step to show you what is next as he's leading you and prompting you? 
And if God has led you to the Keres Brook or is leading you, feels like he's leading you right now to the Keres Brook, that desert place, he's hiding you for a time. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't left you. You are in a sacred place. You don't have to fight it. You can accept it and ask God, where are you in this place? What are you doing in me in this place? Is God asking you to trust him in circumstances that seem bizarre, that seem unusual and weird and even maybe unholy? Is he providing for you in ways that are obscure and bizarre? Because he knows, God knows what is written on your heart. Don't be surprised if he's providing you in ways like rape with ravens, things that are totally unexpected in your life. Because these things are, are there to sustain you. So you can commune with God. So you can cut away things that are hindering your relationship with him. And you can be in that sacred place. What is God doing in that space in your life right now? Because God wants our trust. He will provide what you need. Are you going to let him? So let's pray this morning. Jesus, thank you so much that just from the start of Elijah's life that we see him following you with amazing trust and obedience. And we just pray that for ourselves, that as you call us, as your Holy Spirit prompts us to go into those risky situations, to go into those risky things that you are calling us to do, that you will guide us like that lamp. You will show us the next step, that we will fully trust in you as we take that move, as we make that move. Jesus, I pray as people here maybe are in that desert place where you've led them, I pray that they will encounter that sacred space. I pray that you will minister to them in amazing ways, in unusual and bizarre ways that will really speak to their heart. I pray as we are in the desert place that you will cut away things that are hindering our relationship with you, that we can draw close to you. I pray that we will allow you to prepare us for what is next, for what you're getting us ready for. Jesus, work in our lives. I pray for trust and obedience that we will each just really lean on you as you guide us and lead us. Thank you, Lord, for Elijah, that we can look to him and learn in our own lives who you are and what our faith looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.